Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Well, folks, it's the Paul Leslie Hour coming at you. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm honored that you're here. Have a fresh interview for you. This is an interview with Lanny Feel you'll be hearing in just a few minutes. I think you will be entertained by his story. He has quite an interesting one. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, getting these unique interviews out there, you can do so. Any amount is most appreciated, even a dollar. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. It'll make my day, and that'll be your good deed for the day. You hear this new theme song? That's Karina Karina, the traditional folk blues song, recorded and performed by John Primerano. You can check him out at johnprimerano.com. Thank you so much, John. I'm honored that you recorded that song and allowed us to use it exclusively here on the show. Well, folks, with no further ado, let's get into the interview with Lanny Feel. Here it is. Hey, it's me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome an influential music man. Lanny Feel is here. He's a multi-instrumentalist. To name a few of the things he does, he's a fiddler, a guitarist, a pianist. He's a performer and recording artist, a music director, producer, author, teacher, music historian. He's been a radio personality, and he has some very interesting stories. A lot of diverse things that he's done, as I've just mentioned. Some of the things that you could say are claims to fame. He was a teacher for Amanda Shires. He's been a violist for the Lubbock Symphony Orchestra. He was an early co-writer for Jimmy Buffett. In fact, he was with Jimmy Buffett's Coral Reefer Band in the early 1970s. So, Lanny Field, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. Well, you bet. I'm glad to do it. I, I, I'm not sure I can live up to even half of that introduction you just <laughs> gave me, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things... Uh, as far as I know, this is true about you. You come from a state where many, many great music people are from. Is it true you're a native of Texas? Yes, I am. I grew up in Lubbock. In Lubbock. And tell the people out there a little bit about Lubbock, Texas. Well, there's not a lot to say other than it's just flat. <laughs> you know, there's um, It was a pretty small, dusty town when I grew up. Uh, I was back in the 50s. And, um, you know, it was just, um, well, everybody knows Buddy Holly came from there. And, um, I got started in Lubbock, um, back in the, I guess, 65 or so playing guitar. I'd just taken up guitar and, uh, I went to, I guess, uh, there was a guy named Willie Ritt who I got to know. And Willie is was is a fantastic, fantastic vocalist and musician, and I've gotten a band with him called Willie and the Red Rubber Band, and we did a couple of albums over at uh, one at for RCA it was RCA albums, and one was at uh, Norman Petty Studio over in Clovis, and the other one we did in Nashville at Studio A, and so that, that's how I wound up in Nashville, moving to Nashville, and actually how I met Jimmy 
I really wasn't in the Coral Reefer band. I only played with Jimmy on his um, first two albums he did and played with him and kind of was his backup guy, really. And then later on, I did play on the the album that had Come Monday on there. I, I played on that one. But that's kind of, I'll, that's pretty much what I did with Jimmy. Ah, I see. So in that part of Texas where you were from, Tell us about some of your vivid memories of music growing up, not just music that you saw, but also maybe some of your favorites from the radio or, or albums that you had. Well, you know, I was right at that pivotal place, I guess, when the Beatles came out and the whole British thing, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Animals, the Who, all that, and the Cream, that was all my heroes, you know. And that's how I learn how to play guitar was bouncing the record off the needle the needle off the record to learn the guitar parts and i, I was uh i first got interested in guitar because I, I was really kind of a, a nerd <laughs> i guess you'd say i don't think a lot of that's changed but i saw i heard a band play at the junior high in the ninth grade and i instantly knew what i wanted to do and after that my high school career took a dive and my guitar playing got real good <laughs> so because <laughs> all I did was practice. But I met Willie and I joined the band and went out to California a time or two. There was, you know, the whole scene back then was fresh and it was a new kind of music, you know. And uh, so I just was completely wrapped up in it and wound up in Nashville. And I got to meet a lot of the, the old, I got to meet and hear a lot of the old country people and went to those Johnny Cash tapings, you know, and just was around that, all that influence of the country music. And I got really interested in fiddle. And, um, you know, the old country stuff, the traditional stuff, where things came from. So when um, I moved down to Nashville, I went back to Lubbock. And when I got back, I, were, I wanted to play fiddle. So I had, I thought I had to take the long way around. So I got an orchestra and started playing. I played viola in orchestra and played quite a bit. And um, kind of gave up playing fiddling, you know, for a while. But then while I was playing in orchestra, I... I got, I met a couple of guys. I met this guy named Joe Stevenson. And Joe is probably, in my humble but accurate opinion, the best fiddle player in the world. And there's no doubt about it. He's, uh, he grew up on a farm, fourth generation to play, and, and I was playing a gig with him one night and he came home. On the way back, Joe started telling me about his, uh, experience growing up. And incidentally, when we played the gig, I brought my fiddle along. When I heard Joe play, I, stuff mine behind the amp. I didn't think I'd need it. So on the way back, he's telling me about growing up. The first memory he had was being in a bassinet and could hear the clunk of the piano pedals while his mom was backing his dad up. Well, as he grew up, his dad had him clamp his teeth onto the scroll of the fiddle, and his dad played the tunes into his head, called it popping the tunes. And gosh, by, you know, his dad gave him the choice to practice or plow the you know, and so he, he was a state champion when he was like 16 or something. And anyway, I started making recordings with Joe and, and recorded a lot of the old tunes that he played. And when every time he'd play, he'd just kind of turn his head and the whole tune would just come out. You know, it's just amazing. Then I met another guy. He's a ranch foreman up in the northern Panhandle named Frankie McCorder. And Frankie used to play with Bob Wills, and he had a style – Frankie was actually just an encyclopedia of fiddle, fiddle tunes. And it's the kind of tunes, he, he called it playing them lazy. He had learned everything that Bob Wills ever taught him. And Frankie could play any fiddle tune 
but it was a Texas-style fiddle tune. It's totally different than anything you, you ever hear. And the way I look at it is Frankie had learned from Bob, and Bob Wills, you know, he was back in 1910, and he had learned from the his dad and the people that came before him. So Bob played those old tunes like they were played from the early 1800s, you know, or the 1800s anyway, middle 1800s. And Frankie could do it all just like that. And so whenever I heard Frankie play, I thought, gosh, I'm looking back at 150 years of memories when I heard him play. And I did a couple of recordings with Frankie. Um, we did some things that Tommy Alford and the Playboys kind of helped me out just documenting what Frankie did. So it was a great, I'm very fortunate to have learned these things. Here again, I'm very interested in the traditional things, where things came from. So it was my good fortune to hear that. And then so I started teaching kids. I was um, playing in orchestra, and I would kids would want to come over and play violin, learn to play violin. And so I would kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to show you some fiddle tunes too. Well, that led into forming a little band, and, and I was teaching them the tunes I learned from Joe and Frankie. And this one girl came over one time and going to have a chair test, you know, for her orchestra. And she came in, and she got out the music, set it down, and she played about two bars. And I just thought, gosh, I wish I could sound like that. <laughs> she don't need to take lessons with me. And it was Amanda Shires. And she, you know, and I said, well, what about the rest of it? She said, oh, that's the only two bars I like. <laughs> and that's Amanda. <laughs> she's, and I guess she's done so well now, you know. But, you know, that's kind of my experience as a teacher and and kind of documentary, and I guess, taking, um, going around playing you know, hanging out with these old traditional guys. Another guy named Buck Ramsey, who's a fantastic cowboy poet and, and singer that played, he could just, he had a way with the old traditional cowboy team. So I did a couple of recordings of Buck too. So I've had a lot of good, you know, good exposure to some really great musicians. And, you know, that's kind of, a, that's what I've done in the past anyway. It seems when you mention Bob Wills, there's a, a lot of reverence from you there. And I'm hoping you can tell all the listeners out there about this man, Bob Wills. How important to American music do you think Bob Wills is? I think he's very, very influential, you know. And, um, you know, Bob Wills, what I know about him, you know, from hanging around Frankie and being around all those the, the Texas Playboys, Bob was um, he really you know I think he was exposed to a lot of that early early stuff too. I think he heard I heard that when he was he was a barber in Turkey, I guess or I guess that's where he was or wherever he was living. And he heard that uh, Emmett Miller, I think, was was going to be playing in New Orleans or something like that. But I'm probably getting all this mixed up, but. Anyway, he just dropped his scissors and ran off down to to New Orleans, I guess, and go to these minstrel shows. And Arnett Miller was this guy that uh, he's this incredible, incredible musician. He did the the minstrel shows. It was blackface stuff back then. And but Emmett Miller was uh, gosh, he wrote Love Sick Blues and played with uh, who was it? Uh, some of, oh, some of the great jazz players, you know. But he was just fantastic. He's a huge, huge influence on all these guys. And so I think Bob picked up a lot of stuff from people like that that did the showmanship, but from the minstrel era and that kind of thing. 
So that's kind of what I know about Bob. I think my probably what I know more about Bob would be from what Frankie told me. Because Frankie played with Bob for a period of time, and, and everybody said Frankie sounded more like Bob than Bob did. Hmm. And I, the reason being, Frankie had a natural ability. Whenever he went on tour with Bob, he would pull him aside and say, come on, Bob, show me the old team. Show me Big Tater. Show me this. And, and so he just learned everything. Knew all these things that Bob showed him. And I, when I first met Frankie, I was just completely taken with this little tape that he made. Joe Carr and Alan Mundy out at South Plains College, they re- recorded a, a little cassette with Frankie called Play It Lazy. And uh, it's, it's John Erickson, the, uh, honest, uh, my memory's no good anymore, Hank the Cowdog, God wrote Hank the Cowdog. He's a friend of Frankie and put all them together. Anyway, I'm getting off track. I heard this tape and I just had to meet him. So I was a transcriptionist. I wrote down every single thing on that tape in standard notation. Took him up to Lipscomb, Texas, and outside of there is where Frankie was ranch foreman. And so I sat down that afternoon with Frankie, and he started playing fiddle tunes. It was probably about 1 o'clock. And he could play any of the old tunes, Liberty, you know, Bear Creek, uh, you name it, anything that you would think of, you know, 8th of January, all those standards. But whenever he played one of those tapes that Bob Will showed him, you know, it, it, it would be exactly like what I had written down. Usually, like, you know, like people will play a old fiddle team like Liberty be different every time they play it. But if it was one Bob showed him, it would be note for note like it was. And I'll say this for it. A lot of what Bob played would be in what they call, they all say, oh, Bob breaks meter. He, you know, you know he'll play a, an extra beat. Well, that's how they did it a long time ago. You know, they I think they started pairing things down to just four beats a bar or whatever, you know, four, four time, two, four time. Because you got to keep a 12-piece band together that way. You can't go through throwing in, you know, an extra beat with that many musicians. But when Bob played those old teams, there would be that odd beat. And um, Frankie would do it every single time, every single time. And so I came to realize that that was um, – that's where it goes back to those early, early fiddle tunes. You know, same thing happens in Cajun music. They, they play these offbeats, and, and you know, that'll, that'll just kind of scoot your feet on the dance floor, you know, a little bit. It's just, a, it's just so much deeper and richer than, you know, than just a plain old straight fiddle. So um, that's kind of really what I know more about Bob. My experience is just what he did, you know, the way he, you know, he was just deeply rooted in that old stuff. And then he translated that into... Western Swing, and the showmanship part of it, and Frankie was a showman. If you ever saw videos of Frankie playing live, he moved exactly like Bob. You know, that same kind of laid back, having a good time. And another guy that I got with at that time was Bobby Cooper. He played the uh, lap, not the lap steel, but the no paddle, pedals on the steel, triple neck, fender. And Bobby, you know, he was one of the guys in the Playboy to help me make the record with Frankie. And uh, Bob, Bobby is another one of those guys. He can sell it on the stage, and that's what Bob did. They all they uh, they were just all completely worshipped Bob because of that showmanship and the I mean really a I guess a real close knit group. And um, the thing about Bobby Coford, some of you folks out there may have heard of Bobby. He played with the Miller Brothers and Bob and a lot of those old guys. And but for Bobby. 
plays the most amazing. He can play any jazz tune you've ever heard of, but he plays only with his thumb. Plays a triple neck fiddle, hmm. uh, steel, no pedal, just with his thumb, and you wouldn't believe what he can do. So um, that's kind of you know what that's kind of my memories of all that and Bob Wills and that style, the Western swing style. As I was mentioning at the introduction. We've been talking about fiddle here, but you play a number of instruments. You play the guitar. You can play the piano. Is there an instrument that you would say that's your main axe? That's that's what you most like to focus on. Well, guitar is what I started out with, and that's the. I would say the guitar is my main instrument. Yeah, I can I can get around on the piano. I can play kind of background, you know, backup piano. I'm not really a soloist. But guitar is really, you know, my that's my primary instrument, I would say. Electric guitar, acoustic. I played acoustic with Jimmy. and But I'm, I feel like that is my, my better, you know, probably my primary instrument. I played viola. When I got into symphony, I uh, I started out, I kind of was late coming. I'm 24 years old when I got in there. Most of them start when they're six years old. But uh, I worked real hard at it and played violin and I switched over to viola because the viola players can get more jobs than the violin players and none as many of them. And I think I, I would say I became a competent viola player. I certainly, you know, wasn't a child prodigy or that, but I learned a great deal about music and learned to read and write and all that and, you know, it was a great experience. And uh, I guess I just got, I'm interested in too many things. <laughs> you know, I, I like all, all kinds of music, you know, just... I had a radio program, you mentioned that, where I, every every week, I guess about went on for five years, I was when I was going to Texas Tech and playing in the symphony, I would interview somebody, maybe kind of like you're doing, I would interview somebody that was a musician that came through town. And that's how I met Buck Ramsey, the cowboy singer. That's how I met, I had a Chinese fiddle player and his wife come in one time. He played a Chinese fiddle and she played a guccini. It's kind of like a, you know, you push the string down. And when they came, I just thought, God, this is going to be something that still just had one string on it. And I've never heard anything more beautiful than what they could do. Just incredible. And, uh, oh, gosh, Sonny Curtis was on the program. And uh, I, I had everybody in Turkish, you know, musicians, Indian musicians, everything. You know, it was a great experience. But, you know, I got to know a lot of different styles of music. And that's kind of what I've all been in. I'm always interested in where music comes from. And that sort of thing. And that's that's the kind of thing I, I wanted to instill in the students that I had. I guess I taught about 25 years, and I really wanted to make them aware of, you know, that uh, where this stuff comes from. You know, that's where the real depth, and that's where you really cut your teeth to be a musician. And all the great ones that I've known and seen, that's that's where they come from. That's what, that's what makes a, a true artist, I believe. I think we both have this desire to kind of document and kind of preserve stories and i'm wondering what to you what does roots music mean to you well that was the name of my radio program um roots music is is, you know deep roots that's what the source that's where it came from and you can you know like take an old fiddle tune you can some of they don't know who wrote it. it just came came from way, way back in a tradition. And I guess one example I could give for Roots would be, I got to know Cajun music pretty well. My, I got all, 
hung up in that for a while. And some of the folks that I met in South Louisiana taught me some things. And one of the things was, is that, uh, you know, they, when the, the French people up in Arcadia, that when they, I guess they exiled them down to South Louisiana, there was this combination of French music and then the blues music and uh, some black musicians and, just this whole amalgamation of different kinds of styles that happened that became Cajun music. And when you listen to Cajun music, of course, they're singing it in, you know, I think French, the kind of French that was at the time was the Parisian French, but when it got down to South Louisiana, it mingled with all these other languages, it became Cajun French. The music kind of did the same thing. It's like the Bob Wills thing I mentioned. It had that odd beats every now and then. And from what I've learned, you know, in studying classical music, odd beats are, that that's, goes back to medieval times. You know, that's, oh, that's way, way back. That's traditions. And I think that that bridge, you could look at it like this way, say from Cajun music, came from the old world and came down to the new world. It came from over in the Europeans, over to Arcadia, down to South Louisiana. And I'm doing real generalizations here and speculative things while I'm talking about. I'm certainly no expert. But from what I know, this is what I'm relating. I think that what happened is these styles go back. You know, you you don't know. At some point, you just don't know. You couldn't trace who wrote it. And just like all those old hollers that are in Appalachia or the cowboy songs, these are these are things that are rooted in, I guess this is probably the best way, but these are rooted in real life, in people's living experience. A traditional musician, they're not out to be a star. They're not out to, you know, no idea back then they're going to make money doing this. You know, that was just how they lived. That's what got them through life. You know, was, that was you work all day and you do, you're, you're trying to just live off the land like people did. Of course, I'm certainly not one to, to dream about that. But, you know, those are, the, those are the kind of experience that created, where all this stuff was created from. And here again, that's what I wanted the kids that I was working with to teach them that, you know, you really want to be a good musician, go look for the substance and you'll find it way back there. And you just start devoting yourself to that and you'll learn a great deal. And uh, the one guy comes to mind is Billy McLaren. He was one of my students too. And Billy, he was just a fiddle fanatic. I mean, oh, he lived and breathed fiddle. Well, he went on to play with Sarah Evans and people like that. I think he plays with this guy now, John Pardee. I think they're kind of a country guy. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah. Billy is one of those guys that's just, you know, he has his own little band called the Music City Doughboys. And that's what I like to see is guys like him that really put their head in and, and draw from those old sources, you know. That, so, And looking back, you know, if you, like the era I grew up in the 60s, one of the things that got me so interested in that kind of music was, and I, I could compare it, say, to Rolling Stones. You know, I, there was a guy in Lubbock named Lewis Cowdery, harmonica player. And he came over and with Muddy Waters albums, and Sonny Boy Williamson and Howlin' Wolf and all that stuff. And then I thought, well, the Rolling Stones are imitating those guys. So I went back and started listening to those, you know, Muddy and Sonny Boy and all them. And you hear that the, those are people, their, their music comes from living the life, you know. Hmm. And, uh, Stones and all that, the whole British crowd that drew from that source. They drew from traditional American music. That's what Elvis was drawing from traditional American music. Same thing with Buddy Holly. You know, they they were listening. They had their ear to the ground. 
you know, on that old stuff. And I think that's what made it what it made. That's what made it good. It's just an extension of what came before. Very well put. Absolutely. Well, thanks, huh? Well, that said, you know, I just think that's, you know, and I want to avoid putting any kind of negative spin on it. I, I would say nowadays, I think that's something that people have lost sight of. You know, is that in music, you know, I think it's become more commercialized. I, you know, I saw that happening when I was in Nashville. You know, a lot of it was formed, became formulaic and commercialized and that kind of thing. You hear people talk about it like that all the time. But a lot of the, I think it took a lot of that, the, and what would the word be? Just the soul out of it. Took that out of it. You know, it, it became a business, you know, more so than a, something that came from how somebody lived. Mm-hmm. And they're living And, um, so that's, you know, I, if you, you see those uh, guys, they've done a great version of Ken Burns has done that whole thing on country music. I'd tell folks to listen to that thing. He really gets into it. He really explains all this very well and traces the origins like the Appalachian, the music that was done in Appalachian, the music was done in the Delta and how that all combined and what happened in Nashville, how all this stuff came together and became what it is, you know. And, but to me, the, the real, Meat of the matter was in that era when the traditional music was, I would say when I in the 60s, maybe 50s, 60s, when all this was coming together, when the old traditional sounds were blending in, and that's where this whole thing blossomed of the music that happened. It kind of blossomed in the 60s, late 50s, 60s. Elvis, Buddy Holly, you know, all these great, you know, all, all, all the British players, they, they, were, they were listening to it. The, they were heavily influenced by that old traditional music. If you really want to go back to, to the, the threads, look down to the roots that's where you'll find find where that came from we mentioned bob wills but in terms of you as an artist who do you think are the musicians that have influenced you the most (laughs) that's a pretty long list of course i've been very influenced by bob you know well i commissioned frankie mccord or joe stevenson by that tradition by the west texas I would call it the ranch dance tradition, where they put all the furniture out of the house and go country home and neighbors all come around and they have a, a home dance, cowboy dance. And the, and the old cowboy songs, That's you know, that's kind of the area I grew up in. And then, you know, you take the next step over to, to Buddy Holly. I'm very influenced by Buddy and what he was doing. I think he's one of the pivotal figures in, in rock and roll. If it hadn't been for Buddy Holly, you know, would there be any Beatles? <laughs> you know? hmm. He had the band, you know, his his band was the Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Well, you, the, the Beatles kind of got their name off of that, a play on that, you know. And, uh, of course, I'm interested, I was influenced by all the stuff that was coming out of England, the Beatles and the Animals, the Kings, the Who, you name it, all those early groups. The California groups, all that thing that was happening there, I was heavily influenced by all that kind of stuff. And then I've been very influenced by classical music, too. I, you know, so I've got a lot of different fingers in different pies, I guess. <laughs> it's a good blend of stuff. I want to go back. We were talking a little bit about Jimmy Buffett, and it's kind of interesting. It was just maybe... I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching this series that he's doing where he's been going and he's been performing some of his lesser-known 
songs. And at a certain point, he was having a little bit of trouble remembering who he wrote this song with. And uh, he was talking to his daughter, and he said, it wasn't Lanny Feel, was it? And he, he was wrong. It was somebody else. But I know the song that he wrote with you. And it's a, it's a really interesting song. It's a clever song called Travelin' Clean. I'm curious, do you remember writing that song with Jimmy Buffett? I just remember on that occasion, um, we were, we were in the studio. We worked together at Buzz Kaysen Studio out in Berry Hill. That's, was, uh, in Nashville, kind of near Nashville. And we're just hanging out and, um, I was playing guitar and, and he, we were sitting in there and I, I mainly came up with the guitar chords and I guess some of the melody. I can't, I can't even remember, but we, we sat down and just kind of wrote it together. He just kind of tossed it off. I guess I don't, I don't really remember how that happened. I remember we did that together, but I couldn't tell you, you know, the particulars of how it happened. <laughs> so how did you come to meet Mr. Jimmy Buffett? Well, like I mentioned, um, Willie and the Red Rubber Band, Willie from Lubbock, we came to Nashville, recorded at RCA, and the band split up, and I stayed in Nashville, and we were just, you know, doing what kids do, you know, (laughs) out on the town, so to speak, and I went over to this studio, it's called Spar Studio, and did a session with this guy, and so when we were done, the engineer said, well, I've got this guy needs a guitar player. You think he could come back? And I said, yeah. So uh, the engineer's name, Travis Turk. And so went back there, and, well, it was Jimmy Buffett. So we were doing this. I think it was his first album he did. It um, came out on Barnaby. It's Down to Earth. It was Down to Earth was the album. And so we recorded that at Spar. And then Travis, he and I kind of just started playing with Jimmy all the time after that, you know whenever he'd go do a gig or something. And a lot of times, you know, I'd be with him. And then we, um, Travis started building a studio for Buzz Kaysen out in Berry Hill. And so we went out there and I kind of became the, kind of one of the mainstays playing guitar out there at the studio. When Jimmy, we recorded another album and I think that was called High Cumberland Jubilee. And so, you know, we just got to be friends and, you know, working together and doing stuff like that. And, you know, it was just kind of a thing that just kind of came together more than anything else. And I, I had a great – Jimmy was – he's a neat guy. And back in those days, I just, you know, thought the world of him. You know, I, I had this great opportunity to work with him. And <laughs> funny story, you know, Jimmy – I looked at Jimmy, Jimmy at the time. He was like a – he had a job, <laughs> you know, unlike me. <laughs> and he was married. They had a house, you know, and I'm sitting there sleeping in the truck. And so – I went to, uh, I, I, he let me sleep in his backyard in a hammock. And so, uh, at the time I was all, oh, man, I was interested in bluegrass and all that. And I went to hear Lester Flat in the Nashville grass. They, they did a TV show, six in the morning. And I went out there and listened to him. And, you know, I came back and I was sleeping in that hammock one day, one night. I woke up and I mean, I was having this dream. And I was dreaming that I was at that TV station with Lester Flat, and, and the, the, the roof started leaking. And then all the water started coming in the studio and pouring down on everything and all the instruments. And then I woke up in that hammock and it was just pouring down rain in my face. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> but it's but, a good uh, story. 
Yeah, it's a good story. You know, it's probably one of the highlights of my life in Nashville. But then after I left Nashville, Jimmy came through Lubbock a couple times after I went back and played over there. And we all we did what we always did out the city. We played football. You know, we always used to throw football around out at Berry Hill. And then we came to Lubbock to visit. We played football. And uh, my mom just loved Jimmy. You know, my dad was real sick at the time. Jimmy came to see my dad. And, oh, my mom just, she just thought the world to Jimmy for doing that, you know. But uh, then later, Jimmy, you know, called me up and said, well, this, this guy that was playing with him then couldn't make it. And he flew me up to Nashville. And we played it. Uh, that was the Come Monday session. That uh, I forget what that album is. Living and Dying in Three, Four Time, maybe that album. I think so. But uh, Jimmy, he always had, whenever we recorded, there was always one, two songs or something that really stood out from the rest of them. One that I really liked on the, um, I forget which album it is, it's called The Captain and the, what is it? Captain and the Kid. It's about his grandfather, I think, was a, he, he was a uh, captain on the ship or something like that. Anyway, Jimmy Jimmy was really inspired by him and by his grandfather. And I always liked those songs that had those connections like that. And I always remember that album. I thought, wow, that's a great song. Well, when we were when we did the Come Monday album, I remember one after we recorded Come Monday, I thought, gosh, whatever Jimmy I said, man, that is that's incredible. That's the best song. And it turned out it was. That was kind of the <laughs> song that really got him going, you know. And it is. It's a fantastic song. Fantastic recording too. I, I'm. Here, another one of those things that I've been very fortunate to have been a part of. What about you? Do you write a good number of songs? I have lately. You know, I've been writing quite a bit. I um, That's kind of what I always wanted to do and wouldn't let myself do it. I'm running around recording everybody else. You know, for the long run, when I came back, and, and well, I won't, I'll try to keep this brief, but when I came back from Nashville, I had grown up as a kid going over to Louisiana with my mom taking me to see all of her country people. She grew up with 10 kids in a, just out in the woods. And we'd go over there and all these old country people, my aunts and uncles, they were just loving, you know, country family. So when I came back from Nashville, I stopped in to see them. And at that point, my uncle started telling me and my cousin started telling me about the treasure that they, that my grandfather and uncle and cousins had been, spent their entire lives looking for this treasure out in the Louisiana woods. And they found stone carvings and maps and all this kind of, they had a treasure lease on the federal land. And so anyway, they started telling me all these stories. And that's what really got me writing. And that's kind of what I'm doing today. I'm writing the songs that kind of part of a story that tells that story. And working towards, you know, having a little audio book or something of that nature at some point, you know. So I've really gotten into my writing. I've kind of got uh, a fellow that helps me engineering my recording and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing now. And it's really where my heart's been all along, you know. Kind of like the Johnny Gimble said, you know, if you want to be, why would you want to be like somebody? If, if you're going to, if you want to be like somebody else, and who's going to be like you? <laughs> and I spent a great deal of time trying to be like somebody else. I was going to be a rolling stone or something. It's taken me this long to figure out, you know, <laughs> better. You know, that's when I finally started to learn to write. I started being who I am. You know? Would you say that you're more attracted to the music, the melody of a song, or are you more, are you more lyric oriented? I'd really 
to me, they both come together. You know, that, that I feel like I've written this story over and over again so many times, different drafts, and I've gotten to be – I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on writing, and that's really given me a lot of – a lot of insight to how to put lyrics together. You know, I never, I never could write when I was living in Nashville because I didn't have nothing to say. And I've got something to say now. And so the lyrics come, once I get a song, but I know what I'm going to say just comes out, you know? And so, but I always, you know, to get a lyric going, I've got to have the melody too. So I've got a lot of, through the years, I've just kind of recorded ideas and little snippets of this and that. And I come back and one of them will sound good. I'll put some lyrics to it and they'll just, there it'll be, you know, just, I'm, I'm dried out. So it really comes from personal experience, and I think that's what that's what makes all you know people that just have, that are in touch with themselves. I think I guess would be what I was trying to say. Hmm. Well, just a moment ago, you were saying something uh, along the lines of if 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 you're going to be like somebody else, who's going to be like you? Which I, yeah, I really like that. But on that note. How do you define Lanny Feel? Who is Lanny Feel at heart? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that's a good question. I didn't figure that out. I don't know. I'm just somebody who uh, I just have this. I just I'm somebody who loves to learn, and, um, and and I like the journey. You know, I think for me, and, and I, I, I like the. Um, I guess I'm somebody who's grounded. You know, and, and 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 becoming more grounded, I guess I'd say. You know, uh, I'm kind of yeah. I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just that's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind because I say I'm grounded, but I'm not all over the place. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had so many different interests. I, you know, I can't. I, y'all see my desk? It's just all kinds of different projects. About halfway started, and then I go on to the next thing. And AD, what do they call it? ADD or whatever it is. Tension deficit disorder. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's, that's probably me right there. Well, with this life and all of these interests that you have, you know, because this is a guy, Lanny Field, he gets to play all these instruments, but he's also been able to write about different things and explore things on the radio, roots music, also teach people who become really well-known, Amanda Shires becomes a star, and then writing a song and recording with a legend like Jimmy Buffett. With all these things that you've had the chance to do and continue to do, what is the best thing about being Lanny Feel? You know, I think I've, to me, I think I just have a, I guess I've, I've Falling into, I just have a talent, I guess, just for falling into things, you know, the, the good, the, and mainly it's a good fortune of meeting people that, you know, are extraordinary people. Frankie, Joe Stevenson, Buck Ramsey, and people like Jimmy, Amanda, you know, they could be older than me or younger than me. Bobby Cofer's one. One in particular that I didn't mention was Cindy Walker. We did this when Frankie, when we recorded albums with Frankie, we did this. Frankie was a fantastic singer and he sang this song called Texas Sandman. And it's, um, Cindy Walker wrote that. I, you know who Cindy is, I'm sure. But oh, yeah. Probably one of the greatest songwriters. And so probably, you know, top 100 hits over a half a, cent, a half a century, you know. 
Well, I got to be friends with her. She wrote the Texas Sandman, and we and I called her up and said it was okay if we did this song. And for some reason, uh, she heard me uh, at one of these little cowboys. We'd go to these cowboy symposiums, and she heard the kids playing. Anyway, I got to be friends with her. And it's the funniest thing, because she would call me up. And she said, oh, I want you to hear this song I just wrote. I'm thinking, God, Cindy Walker's calling me up. <laughs> <You> know, <and laughs> so I went to see her. My wife and I went to see her. And, you know, Cindy, you know, just, you know, all these songs that she's written, just incredible tunes. Well, you go over to her house, it's like going to my grandmother's little clapboard house on Mahaya, Texas. And you pull up and surrounded by juniper trees. And when we got there, it was like gone with the wind. You know, her, she had this lady, Willie May, who said, oh, here they come. They're here. You know, she put a ribbon out on the tree so we could find her house. So you go into this house, and the piano, her mother used to play piano for her. She didn't play an instrument. And um, we go in there and sit down, and lunch was turnip greens and Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and uh, it was just like going home, you know, going to the folks in Louisiana. And But what was amazing about this lady, and what was an inspiration to me, was here's somebody that started, she talked about playing her first, you know, she wanted to be a, she had a poem. She wrote a poem and wanted to be, wanted to say it in, in, in the poem contest or whatever when she was in, in elementary school and they wouldn't let her say, well, you're not old enough. Well, she was determined and bugged them and bugged them. So they let her in and she won the poem contest. And then I think she wrote her first song, Dusty Skies, like she's seven years old, something like that. Something, you know, extraordinary like that. And she told us the story of how she went out to California and, uh, her, her dad was a cotton buyer. She went out there and she had a little, satchel that she carried all her songs in so she went into this um they're going down hollywood boulevard or sunset boulevard or something like that and she saw the bing crosby and said oh dad dad i gotta go in there. i gotta go in there i got a song for bing crosby well his mom he played piano said, well i'm not going her mom said, i'm not going in there because he's uh you know I, i'm not i'm not dressed i'm not ready my hair's not messed up i'm not going in well cindy said well i'm going in so she went in she went, she'd never been on the elevator. She went up three flights of stairs and got up there and she said, went to the desk and said, well, I got a song for Bing Crosby. And this lady says, well, everybody's got a song for Bing Crosby. And Bob Crosby was over there and she said, well, I'll, I'll listen to it. And he heard this song and he said, I think you better come out to the studio and let Bing hear this. So the next day they went out and her mother still wasn't going to go. So she had a little toy guitar she took out there and president of Decca Records was there with them and she she played this song and they signed her right on the spot. And the song was Lone Star Trail. And after that, it's, um, you know, just one hit after the other, all that Bob Will stuff that she wrote. And my wife was, it's real funny. She was sitting in this chair and she said, Cindy, when you wrote in the misty moonlight, were you sitting there looking at the window and looking at the moonlight? And Cindy goes, no, I was just sitting in that chair where you're sitting just wrote it down. (laughs) And, uh, just another one of those extraordinary people that I've gotten to meet. And I think it's because of all this interest that I have. It's kind of paved the way getting to know somebody like that. And, and, and that's been a big influence on me, you know, kind of gave me some confidence. And I remember the last time she talked to me, she calls up and says, you know something? Did you know Ray Charles recorded that, my You Don't Know Me song? And that went 24 million platinum. <laughs> But she would never know. That was not her focus. Like I say, she just lived in this little old house, 
where her mother had, where they'd grown up, never moved, didn't have any big mansion or any of that. And um, my wife said, well, Cindy, when you were out in California, did, did you go to all the parties and all that kind of stuff? She said, no, my mom did all that. I just stayed around. I had songs to write. <laughs> so it's kind of like, that's the kind of thing that I like about people like her that were devoted to what they did. And there's a guy like Frankie who's just devoted. You know, that's their life. They breathed it. And I guess that's me. You ask me who I am. I, I just, you know, my wife's going to retire. And I said, well, you can retire, but I'll never retire. <laughs> you know, not, you know it's, just, it's a passion, you know. And I think, uh, so when you ask that, I guess that's what it is. I, I feel a kinship to people that that live their lives with what they do and, and their passion for it. And, and here again, I just trace that back to all those traditional musicians that out in the hills or on the plains or down in the swamp, wherever they are, that they're living their life. And that's, that's the thing that gets people through, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Lenny Field, thank you so much for sharing with us. I hope you keep me apprised whenever anything new comes down the river with you, whether it's recordings or whatever. It's been a joy to talk to you. Well, I appreciate it, and I'll do that. I am working on a putting together a little website that I hope to put out pretty soon that's going to have all of Frankie's albums on it and stuff like that. And so, Oh, cool. I'm going to have some of those, make those recordings available. So I get that done. I'd like to be able to, you know, send you some samples of it or, you know, get you tuned in on there. Maybe some of your listeners might enjoy some of that. Absolutely. When I do some of my other stuff, you know, get to, I'll be, I always like to share some of these things with folks and find out what everybody else is doing too. So, Appreciate that. My pleasure. Goodbye.